good. You may be seated and go ahead and pull your books out and your Bibles and if you will turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And I've mentioned this quite a few times um, about this series. This is a series on marriage, but boy, it, it fits in so many other areas of our life, whether we're married or not. And um, this one this morning is definitely fits into that category. It's, it's we're talking about contentment this morning. And uh, of course, we are, we're, we are using the, uh, the analogy of, of traveling uh, on a journey, traveling on a trip, and so we've, we've done a lot of different things about that on the way, and this one is called a tourist trap, because sometimes that's exactly what happens with, uh, with our lives. We get, we get sidetracked by things that don't really matter. And I know that all of you have been to a souvenir shop at some point, and um, boy, I tell you what, I used to, I used to collect t-shirts and hats and all kinds of stuff, and you know how that gets... Most of the time, you're like, oh, man, it's three for $2. You know, you buy three T-shirts, and you can wear it one time, and then, you know, it fits, you know, a little big the first time you wear it, and the next time you wear it, it's like it belongs on a baby doll or something, you know? No wonder it was three for $2, you know? But you go into some of these, some of these souvenir shops, and they have just the, the dumbest junk that you can possibly imagine. You're like, why would somebody buy that, you know? And why would you have that in the shop? Uh, they found, a, uh, I found a list of worst souvenir gifts, and this, this list had seven of them on there. One of them was a pair of singing flamenco shoes. <laughs> Why would you need that? A wonky-eyed self-portrait, a giant plastic fish, a cat in a basket made of real fur. Why would you? Oh, man, a doll made out of shells. You imagine how scary that thing would be? A large Japanese statue with a scary face. A crab set in clear plastic, set in a clear plastic setting. There's all kinds of stuff like that, and, and you could probably add to that whole list of things that you, you know, have come across in some of these tourist destinations that are just trinkets that you will never use. You know, you probably have things that are sitting in a closet that you've never looked at since you bought it. You know, but I'll tell you one thing that we started doing is collecting magnets because they they take up a little, just a little space. They, you know, they're, they're usually not very expensive, and it proves that you were there, you know. And, you know, um, we collected all kinds of magnets for years when we were traveling on deputation and just a lot of different places that I've been. And so what I'm planning to do, I've got enough to do it right now probably, but I'm going to build a little wooden frame and then get one of those little galvanized pieces of metal and just stick all of those things to that and then kind of hang it as, a, you know, a picture in the hallway or something. I don't know where, but... Discontentment is a lot like these little trinkets that are sold in a tourist trap. You know, it convinces you that something will make you happy. Uh, it's going to make your journey richer, it's, and that without that, your journey is actually going to be incomplete if you don't have this little trinket. And, and discontentment can lure you from a place of blessing without telling you the true cost involved. Uh, and so many people fall into this trap. Sometimes those, those costs involve the sacrifice of your relationship with God. Sometimes that cost is the, the faith that you used to uh, embrace. Sometimes that's your dearest relationships. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse number 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Nobody has any idea of the high cost uh, of discontentment at the beginning of the journey. We think that we're in control. Uh, we think that we are determining 
how the money is being spent, when in actuality, the money is controlling you. And it's not just money. It's, it's things. It's all those things. But money, like the Bible says, you know, the people always say, oh, money is the root of all evil. No, the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. God gives people money, and if they're using it for his purposes, and if they're using it in a way that's pleasing to him, there's nothing wrong with having money. Nothing wrong with wanting to make your life better by having more money. But when that becomes your love, that moves into discontentment. And obviously, God says that, that's, that you know, people covet after that. They've erred from the faith. They've moved completely away from what they used to be as a Christian. And they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So usually, when it comes to these things, we're not near as in control as we think we are. The Bible says there in Hebrews chapter 13... In verse number five, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Let your conversation, your lifestyle, that's what that word conversation in the Bible means, your lifestyle, be without covetousness. And that includes your conversation, your talk, it includes everything, but... The topic of contentment is important for, for every Christian. Uh, it plays a significant role in marriage, though, because of, of how closely it relates to our finances. If I were to ask you to name the top three reasons for divorce in the United States, most of you could probably come up with the fact that money is the number one issue. Money is the number one issue. 57% of people in the United States that get a divorce say that money was the root of the issue for why they were getting a divorce. 57%. That's a, that's a huge number, you know, and, and, and then the re, all the rest of those fit in after that. But there has to be more to that, that statistic than, than meets the eye, though, because it's easy to oversimplify statistics, and, and um, there's a lot of factors that are money-related when it comes to marriage issues and all that kind of stuff, uh, communication uh, about that money, you know, how, how the money is being spent, uh, transparency in your finances or lack thereof. Um, there's just, there's, there's so many things. But I would, I would venture to say that, that disagreements regarding finances relate to an area that we rarely consider in our marriage, and that is contentment. It's contentment. And so few people are content, not just in their marriage, but in, in life in general. And so Contentment is a larger issue than just a financial issue, far larger than just a financial issue. And we're going to look at some of these things as we go through this lesson, but because financial disagreements are, are, are a significant indicator of contentment, or maybe I should say discontentment, um, because finances are so significant in marriage, and we're going to primarily look at contentment through the lens of finances. And that's what we'll... Um, that's how we'll try to apply these truths in Hebrews 13, 1 Timothy 6, as we go through this. So number one is this, admonitions for contentment. Admonitions for contentment. And, and as we go through this, we're primarily going to be studying 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're primarily going to be studying Hebrews chapter 13. Those are the two that we're going to look at the most. But we're going to find that discontentment and contentment are addressed all the way throughout Scripture, uh, including from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. So the first thing we'll say is this, beware... Of covetousness. Beware of covetousness. 
Now, that word beware, only, you only see it 14 times in the New Testament. But nine of those times, it actually came from Jesus Christ himself. Beware, beware, which obviously he was teaching. He was doing a lot of this uh, teaching the Pharisees and the Jews and the, and the Sadducees and the Gentiles and, and everybody that would listen to him. And so Jesus warned those people who were following him to beware of false teachers, to beware of false doctrine, to beware of... Uh, the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, all things that we would agree that we should be aware of and that we should be cautious of. But in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus used this beware to warn against a sin that we very easily excuse, and that is covetousness. He says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, and he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Boy, if we could just capture that and put it into our marriages, put it into our life, put it into our workplace, put it into everything that we do, it would change our outlook completely. Look at that again. Beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Doesn't that go exactly against the grain of our society today? There are so many people that are just completely wrapped up in money. And the more money you have, the more happiness you're going to have, and the more contentment you're going to have. I, Brad Pitt is an actor. I mean, he's one of these really popular, I don't even know if I've seen really any movies with him in it, but he, uh, he did an, uh, an interview with uh, Rolling Stone magazine or one of these you know, popular magazines, and in that uh, interview with, with the guy that was doing this article on him, Brad Pitt said, I have everything. I have all the money I could ever want. I've got fame. I've got popularity. I've got all the houses and cars that I'll ever want. And he said, it's empty. Something is missing. Something is missing. And boy, you just want to scream at the top of your lungs and tell him what's missing, right? But that doesn't bring happiness. You know, having everything does not solve all the problems. And somebody said, well, I'd like to have the opportunity to try and see if it does. But, you know, these people who have everything realize that, that it's nothing. It's nothing. It brings them no happiness. I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of happiness to be found in being able to buy anything you want, I'm sure. But it's not. It doesn't last. It's not the true happiness. And once you have it all, it's proof. You know, they, they, they're just, they're not happy. Covetousness, it's not, it's not a word that we use very often, but it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a deceptive disease of the heart because it, it promises that something we don't have will make us happy. And when we believe that lie, it just slowly consumes our life. It consumes our relationships. It just slowly eats away at us because, oh, if I could only have that, then I would be happy. And then what happens? You get it. And then it's, oh, if I could only have that, then I would really be happy. And, oh, if I could only have that, and that, and that, and that, then I would really be happy. And that's what covetousness is. It's just wanting something that you cannot have, wanting something that you don't have. And, you know, maybe your temptation toward discontentment comes in the area uh, that Christ was speaking about in the verse, possessions. You know, that's, that's where a lot of people have discontentment. That's where a lot of people have covetousness. But maybe you struggle with your financial status. You wish that you had more things, a more comfortable lifestyle, a more financial security. Uh, maybe you wish for a different status in life. You want that recognition or that affirmation. You want the, 
You want the, the recognition that comes from being in a position of power or a position of leadership. Or maybe you want, you know, for children that for some reason God hasn't given, or at least not yet. Or maybe you envy the way that your friend's husband treats her. Uh, there's so many things. You know, you wish your wife's appearance would change. You wish your husband's paycheck was larger or his career was different. So many things. So many things that we, uh, that we can covet after. And I don't, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong for you to want to have a better life. I'm not saying that you should never want to have a better job so that you can provide more financial security. I'm not saying that you should never want, you know, boy, it'd be nice to have that. I, I'm, I'm going to save up to go get that thing. There's nothing, that's, 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 that's not covetousness. Um, but what is wrong is believing that without something, you can't be happy. That's what covetousness is. Who doesn't want to have, you know, a, a more comfortable lifestyle? Who doesn't want to have a better job? Who doesn't want to have a better position? There's nothing wrong with those things. But the problem is when we get to the point where we think, I'll never be happy until I have. And maybe you're thinking, well, I never say that. But in the way that you act toward those things, you don't have to say it sometimes. It's your attitude toward those things. That's what brings out the covetousness. Whatever that something is for you, whether it's tangible or intangible, we have to remember Jesus' words that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Your life and the story that God is writing is larger than any one particular thing. So, first off, we have to beware of covetousness, but secondly, avoid comparisons. Avoid comparisons. If you were to ask most Christians to rank covetousness on the terms of big sin or little sin, most of us wouldn't rank covetousness very high. Uh, big sins, you know, murder, robbery, adultery, you know, some of these bigger sins that, that we call big sins. Covetousness, would, would, it's, it's just not a sin that we think of very often. Uh, but thou shalt not covet, that's included in one of the Ten Commandments. The Bible says that in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now when this command was originally given, to covet something of your neighbors, you had to see it in person. You know, in your heart, you would compare uh, what you had or didn't have with what he had, and you, you would want what he had. I mean, because obviously there was no media, right? There was no TV. There was no internet. There was none of these things. But today, you don't need to be physically present to see and want what somebody else has. And in fact, covetousness has a broadcasting uh, tool today that was unavailable when a lot of these, uh, when all of the Bible was written, and that is social media, right? Social media, I think, has been one of the absolute worst things that could ever have happened to our country, and I see that there are benefits to it. I'm not going to say that all social media is bad. Like we use, we use Facebook and we use some of these things to try to get the word out about. Uh, any number of things, you know, related to church, devotionals, all those kind of things. So I'm not, I'm not saying that all of it is bad, but I'm telling you, we'd be a whole lot better off without it. Because what happens so many times is, it, you know, a lot of godly people use social media and they find benefits. It's not that, you know, it's just that, you know, social media makes it finger, fingertip easy to see what we have and what we don't have and what somebody else has that we don't have. And I, and I talk about this a decent amount, you know, 
Social media makes it very easy to compare your life to somebody else's. But what they don't show you so many times is the chaos and the craziness that's going on right outside the picture frame, you know? And they try to, and I say they, I'm just using social media people in general because it seems like everybody uh, or most people try to do this, you know? They want everybody to think their life is perfect. They want everybody to, well, look at look how my life turned out compared to how your life turned out or com- uh, compared to what everybody else is doing, you know? And things could be going crazy behind the scenes, but as long as in that little square that goes on social media is good, then everybody's going to think that my life is perfect. And then what happens? People see that person's life and think, man, how do they have everything so together? They have everything. They got it all lined up. They got it all perfect. I mean, why is their life so perfect and my life is so crazy? You know? But the, but the truth is, is, their life is crazy too. But that's what social media does. Social media just twists everything and makes you, many times, compare your life to somebody else's life. Um, think about it this way. When, when does a wife most resent that her husband, her, her husband has not bought her just because flowers? Because she was walking through the house one day and thought, my husband hasn't bought me flowers in a long time just because. No, what happens? Scrolling through social media, and you see that somebody is posting something on there about how her husband is the greatest husband in the world and bought her flowers just because, right? And now, yeah, you want your wife to buy you flowers. <laughs> oh, oh, I got you. I got you. Yeah, I was jealous. Yeah, I wanted some of those. But when does a wife get to that point? It's not because she just happened to think about it. She saw it on social media, and oh, her husband does this for her. Why doesn't my husband do that? Right? When is, when is a husband, um, you know, most easily frustrated with his job? Is it, is it only at the moments when he's at his work? Or is it when he sees somebody else posting about how perfect their job is and why can't my job be that way? Right? It's because we start to compare ourselves and that's exactly where covetousness, I don't know if you can say that that's covetousness, but that's, that's definitely the root. That's where it starts. Social media can, can, can touch the deepest nerves of covetousness because when you've, you, know, you, you had a fight with somebody else, uh, your, your, your spouse, let's just use your spouse for an example. You have, a, you, have a, you have a fight with your spouse, you're going through different things, a lot of stress underneath that, and then comes a private message from somebody that you used to be in high school with. And, and, and this happens a whole lot more than you realize it does. And the next thing you know, you've rekindled this old flame between somebody that you used to have in high school and, you know, haven't seen in 15 or 20 years, and you're starting to go back and look through their social media posts and seeing how perfect their life is, and you start comparing your life now to what their life is, which, remember, this is social media, so they're giving you all the best parts of everything, right? And now you're having, you know, you're having struggles with your husband or your wife, and now social media comes in and starts to portray this life that you wish you could have, and you start to covet that life. And again, I don't think social media is evil. It's not. Anything sinful that comes is a result of sin in the heart, not on a screen. But, but if you think about even the larger picture, in fact, Luke chapter 12, Jesus' warning that we looked at a, a, a few minutes ago, uh, it, it really reveals that covetousness is first and foremost an issue of the heart. It starts in the heart. 
And one of the people listening to Jesus wanted, to Jesus, wanted Jesus to step in and solve a, a family dispute over who should receive an inheritance. And after Jesus was not, you know, he wasn't drawn into being a civil judge, but Jesus basically told the crowd gathered there that covetousness could be the root of our quest for more things. Luke chapter 12 and verse number 13, and one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. But social media has a way of magnifying that comparison and you know, appealing to the covetousness that creeps into our heart. And because it's and because it seems so benign and because it has the illusion of secrecy, um, it's wounded a lot of hearts. It's wounded a lot of marriages. And it's something that we have to be very careful with. Um, uh, most of you probably have social media accounts. And I'm, please, I'm not saying that those things are wrong. I'm not saying that you should go delete your Facebook or your Instagram. Or, I, honestly, I don't even, those are the only two that I even know of, Facebook and Instagram. There's probably 15 other ones out there now that I have not even heard of. But, um, you know, if, if you have a social media account, your, your wife or your husband ought to have the password to that. In fact, my wife and I have a, basically a shared account, you know. I mean, our, our, my Instagram account is her Instagram account. She doesn't, she doesn't post hardly anything. In fact, I don't know if she's ever posted anything on there. But she has access to it. She gets it on her phone. Anything that I see on social media, anything that I post, or, and I don't even know how all this stuff works, honestly. I, I'm, just, I'm not that good at it. But uh, n- there's nothing that's secret. Any message that I send to anybody on Facebook, she can see it because her account is my account. Her password is my password. And that's the, that's the way that it should be because you have to have something to keep you accountable. And if you don't have something to keep you accountable, then these things can get out of end very quickly. Nothing wrong with social media. Um, but, you know, you ought to only talk about your spouse. You only ought to talk about your family positively on those places. Um, you know, there's... You know, th- th- that's, there's no suggestion of fishing back to old relationships at that point. If you make a big deal about, if I make a big deal about my wife and my family on social media, then nobody that I, that, you know, that I talked to in high school or whatever else, you know, which we didn't do that much of that stuff anyway, but nobody's going to get any idea that I'm looking for somebody else or I'm looking for a way out, you know? You have a little option to do a, a little description about yourself, Right? ought to be that you're happily married to your wife and thankful for your kids and, you know, wonderful life that God gave me or whatever, whatever, but it ought to be clear. Social media is never a place to complain about your spouse. Um, besides that being hurtful, uh, social media is not going to do anything to help you solve your problems with your husband or your wife. Uh, but nobody needs to see your dirty laundry on social media and see your discontent on social media and think there's an opportunity. Nobody should ever think that when they see anything that you have on social media. So when it comes to any, uh, I guess you could just call it online activity, you have to remember that sin always thrives in secrecy. Sin always thrives in secrecy. And so your best defense is to just keep everything about your life, whether it's physical or electronic, shared with your spouse. Covetousness has has a tendency to sneak into our lives in so many ways. So we have to guard against it as a couple. So here's the second thing. Values of contentment. Values of contentment. When I taught English, one of the stories that was in the English book 
was uh, Leo, Tolst Leo Tolstoy wrote a book, uh, uh, it's, it's really a short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in that story, a guy named Pahom, P-A-H-O-M, Pahom, comes across this group of, of people in a village, and they said for just a small sum of money, you can have whatever land you can walk around in a day. You have from sun up to sundown, and however much land you can walk around, as long as you're back and basically close that circle, you can have that much land for that little price. And so he woke up before the sun even got up, and he took off, and he started making a huge circle around a gigantic piece of land. And the sun was starting to go down, and as the sun went down, he knew that he better hurry to get back to this spot, or he was going to lose even that little bit of money and all of that land. So he, he just, you know, he, he put it into overdrive, and he got back to that point, and he could see the spot where he was supposed to be up at the top of that hill. And so he rushed and rushed and rushed, and he made it up to the top of that hill, and he dropped over dead. And those guys there that were in that little, in that little village dug a six-foot by six-foot hole that was just big enough for him to fit in, buried him in the ground, and he asked that question, how much land does a man need? And the question, the answer to that question was basically enough to bury him in because of covetousness. And that's exactly what the whole point of that story was. How much is enough? Our natural tendency is to think that more stuff equals a better life. So we accumulate things, um, whether it's material or intangible. We have to come out ahead. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the biggest business, but when something starts to go up on a new piece of property, there's two things that you automatically think it is. Number one, a Walgreens, because they're putting those everywhere. And number two, a storage facility, right? They are going up everywhere. Huge storage facilities. Why is that? Because people have so much stuff that even with these gigantic houses that they're buying, they still don't have enough room for it, right? And that's, I'm not saying that that means you're covetous, but um, it's just, we just gather and gather and gather and gather, and I, the more stuff we have, the more happy we're going to be. But the Apostle Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, went exactly against that teaching. He said, for we brought nothing, verse 7, into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. In other words, he said, if you have food and you have clothes, what else do you need? Be happy, you know? But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And just before that passage, Paul defines for us what real gain really is. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, coming out ahead in contentment isn't only avoiding a lifestyle of covetousness, it's actually embracing a lifestyle of godliness. Just because, well, I'm not covetous, does not mean that you got everything squared away. It's not that we should just avoid covetousness, we should actively pursue godliness. Godliness plus Contentment equals great gain. And there's so many people, well, I'm content, I'm happy with where I'm at, but do you have that godliness? Because that's, that's a part of it. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Even if you could gain everything you wanted, you would discover that in the process you lost things that you really needed, like your marriage, like your relationship. Look, how many stories have you heard about people who won the lottery 
and their life is absolutely destroyed. Why do people play the lottery? One of these days, I'm going to hit it big. I'm going to win the million-dollar jackpot, right? And you win the million-dollar jackpot, and everybody finds out about it, and now they're like, well, he's so selfish. He's stingy. He won a million bucks, and he won't share it with me. Not, you know, not realizing that there's 2,000 other people lined up saying the exact same thing, you know? And they're li- I mean, most of these people who win the lottery, unless they're, I mean, number one, you're probably not playing the lottery. If you're, you're, not, you're probably not a responsible person if you're playing the lottery anyway, but unless you're a very responsible person and you win the lottery, it's going to ruin your life. Most of these people, their marriages end up destroyed, their family ends up destroyed, their kids end up mad at them. They, I mean, life is just, you know, it's, it's just their life becomes a miserable wreck because they finally got their hands on what they were trying to get all along, and that was the big prize from the lottery, you know. Um, a covetous lifestyle is never satisfied. But it's always, it's always seeking more. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 also talks about the importance of a lifestyle of contentment. Let your covetousness, uh, covetousness, your conversation, let your lifestyle be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. How do you come to the place of satisfaction? What, what does a lifestyle of contentment plus godliness look like? It comes with two important values. We'll look at the first one and then we'll be done. The first one is focus on the eternal over the temporal. Focus on the eternal over the temporal. Even the world knows that being content makes you happier. Benjamin Franklin said, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. But, but Christian contentment is, is more than just not wanting stuff. It, it includes valuing what lasts beyond this life. And that's why I say focus on the eternal over the, over the temporal. If my heart is tangled around temporary possessions or temporary desires, anything that stands in the way of those things becomes an obstacle, becomes a threat, right? And that's where a lot of financial fighting comes into place in marriages. Uh, but if my heart is focused toward the eternal, then the whole game changes because money in eternity doesn't matter. You probably heard this story before of a, you know, a man decided that he was going to take something with him when he went. And so uh, he, you know, he... Uh, obviously, uh, fake story, but, you know, St. Peter finally said, all right, you can take one thing with you. And this man was wealthy. You can bring one thing with you when you die. And so he said, man, well, I've got all of this gold stored up in my vault in the bank. I'm going to take a whole briefcase of gold with me. And so he died, and he showed up at the gates, and he brought his briefcase with him, and he gets in there, and... and um, you know, some of the others that were there started talking about, boy, he must have been something really valuable in that briefcase, you know, because he, he, this is what he decided to bring. And so they asked him, and finally he set the thing down, and he opened it up, and he, you know, showed him what was in the briefcase. And they said, you could bring anything you want, and you brought pavement? And that's exactly what, it, you know, money doesn't matter. You, you don't ever see, you don't ever see a, 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 a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? Because you can't take anything with you. And when you change from thinking of everything being temporal to everything being eternal, it changes your entire mindset. Um, you know, I'll, I'll deal with the necessary affairs of life and will provide for my family and do my best to be a steward of the temporal blessings that God has entrusted me to. If you have that as your mindset, then it changes everything. Uh, my focus is going to change. When my heart is set on the eternal, it frees me from being entangled with the things that are temporal. It's exactly what God commands. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ, 
Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Focusing on the eternal allows us to lay up treasures in heaven by giving to God's work, right? I can't take it with me, but I can tell you this, I sure can send it on ahead. And that's how we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's how we focus on the eternal instead of the temporal. One last verse, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 21. We talked about this when we went through in, in the Sermon on the Mount. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Focus on the eternal over the temporal. I'll give you the second one, and we'll talk about it next week. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We'll get to that when we get together next Sunday. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the time that we can spend together this morning and for the word of God and just how plain it is to us. God, I pray that you'd help us to watch out for discontentment. I pray that you'd help us to watch out for covetousness. God, that we would focus on the eternal over the temporal, not just in our marriages, although that's very important, but in every aspect of our life. God, I pray that you'd bless the service in the next hour. We'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen.